Dateline, the future. Humankind stretches out to the stars. Maybe they go on generation ships. Maybe they live on space stations. Maybe terraforming bases dominate the worlds of tomorrow. In these hostile places, only two things seem certain. With people come conflicts. And in manufactured environments, the wrong kind of conflict will damage your air supply. So forget regular guns, needle lasers, ray guns, and anything else that can screw up your habitat. I want stories where the violence and conflict depend on ingeniously adapting ancient weapons to future environments, where this technological shift solves old social problems and creates new ones, and where cultures and religions arise around those weapons and provide them contexts, both accepted and outlaw, within their societies. Give me swashbucklers, knife fighters, booby trappers, baton wielders, pirates, mafiosos, Robin Hoods, cops, priests, robbers, fugitives, and assassins. Give me swords in space. This is a paying market. Submit your story to editor at everydaynovelist.com. Be sure to use the phrase swords in space in the subject line. 8,000 words maximum, 2,000 words minimum. See you on the slush pile. Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 1001. Today we hear from Nicole, who asks, I need to learn more about the implications of a shrinking economic world. Still working on my Alice story, but as I have not read up on this, I worry the story may go in implausible directions. Do you have any recommendations for writers on this topic, fiction or non? Okay, so a little bit of background for those of you who haven't heard or haven't been following my Substack, which you should at jdanielsawyer.substack.com. The world that we are now in, um, starting basically when COVID hit, um, mm-hmm. it was supposed to start about now, but COVID sort of accelerated things, is a world in which each successive generation is smaller than the preceding one, and the big generation that has been supplying all the capital for the world is now aging out and retiring, which means that credit is starting to get more expensive and will very soon dry up. Um, And that's because fractional reserve lending on which credit is based, the reserves are the savings and investments and retirement funds of middle-aged people. And Mm -hmm. once you retire, you pull that stuff out into cash and treasury bills and other really safe investments so that you don't uh, have to deal with volatility. And the massive consuming generation that we've had here in the United States and in France and in New Zealand and a couple other places, the millennials, they're all aging into middle age, which is the peak productive years, but there's no consuming generation anywhere in the world that follows them up. And nowhere else in the world even has millennials. So everybody else is really over this cliff and we're just now heading off this cliff. So... A lot of the focus on how to keep the economy going that you'll see from um, 
from tech people especially, uh, there's a, a great, uh, oh God, I can't remember his name. It's a, there's a lot of great thinkers in the tech space that are looking at this, but they're focusing on productivity for a reduced workforce. That doesn't help you keep economic growth going if you don't have people there to consume the product. Right. And we don't have people there to consume the product, which is why the only major growth sector absent a new technological revolution that forces everybody to go adopt a new thing, the only um, such growth sector for the next 20 years is medicine because old people consume, old medicine. People consume medicine and not much else. And uh, people under 60 and over the age of five basically don't consume medicine at all, statistically speaking. Something like 20% of medical spending happens in the first five years of life, and 70-odd percent happens in the last 20 years of life, and the rest of your life is that, that f those few percent in between that mm -hmm. make up the difference. So what happens to a world where everything, everything is premised upon the idea that there's going to be economic growth because there's going to be population growth? We've been in that world since the end of the Black Death. Yeah. For 200 years before the Black Death, we were in a post-growth world. Because, at least in Europe, the population kept getting knocked down and down over the course of 200 years, so that by the end of the Black Death waves, it was somewhere between a third and a half lower than it was before that. This broke the back of the medieval economic system. Because the medieval economic system, much like our own system is tending towards, was entirely characterized by the total capture of labor by capital. Because there was a lot more people to do the labor than there was demand for it. So labor prices were low. So you had a very stark separation between the haves and have-nots. Mm -hmm. The last hundred years and the last 500 years really have been very anomalous in terms of world history because you've had a middle class. Because the laborers had, um, were always in demand. There was never enough workers to go around. And so you could have things like the end of the guild system and the rise of labor unions and the rise of small towns and massive economic growth everywhere. And World War II helped us along because it killed off a lot of the workers. So the workers' wages got more valuable again just at a time when the labor union movement was getting its feet under it. So the ensuing baby boom meant that we had 80 years of massive growth, and right at the beginning of that, the entire world, the entire developed world, agreed basically to an economic program that featured heavily social welfare and other things like that, that you can only have when there's a large younger generation paying for a small old generation's retirement and a small population of poor people to be given just enough to live on. Mm -hmm. And as that system has matured and the large generation has aged up, the welfare payments have gotten bigger for more people because more people are in need, more because the workers have less bargaining power. And the whole system is now at a point of overbalance and collapse because we don't have the growth going on. Mm -hmm. And the growth will not come back for at least two generations because that's what it takes to grow a middle-aged workforce. And the middle-aged workforce is hyper-productive. It takes and 20 what, years to grow a consuming workforce. How um, quickly we bounce back from that to or bounce back from this post-growth world back into a growth world depends a lot on when 
millennials and Zoomers start having kids and, and how many kids they have. Yeah, they have to be having at least three kids per family on average. Right. Um, and that's what turns the growth train around. And that's going to be interesting because, of course, when you're urbanized, children are an economic liability, not an economic boon. And that's that's one of those it's called a secular force, right? Nobody intended that to happen. It's just one of those ecological facts, which is why the birth rate has fallen everywhere. It's now falling in Africa below replacement level. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be interesting. Um, so absent a new technological revolution, we're in for a long economic depression. And long economic depressions have a lot of interesting cultural effects. They hollow out centralized governments. They return power to the localities. They are not kind to individualism of the sort that we've become accustomed to, because one of the things that makes room for individualism, weirdly enough, is the centralization of authority. Because if the centralized um, authority, who is far removed from you, and thus can't control you very well, is the only thing that really has the power to make your life miserable or constrained, there's suddenly a lot more elbow room for the individual because your family unit has less power because as an individual you can go off and make your fortune somewhere else. Right. The small town has less power because it, can can't, afford, it can't afford to drive people away. <laughs> but now, of course, when we're coming over the cliff, the cities have less power because they can't afford to drive people away. Because they need the people. And so um, utopian plans in cities um, are going to take a hit. Right. So the historical paradigm to look at is that and also the period after the fall of Rome. Uh, James Burke, in his ser series The Day the Universe Changed, had this extraordinary line where he summed up the difference in what being human was like in the post-Roman world. He said... The thing that is so hard for us to understand in our modern world is that everything these people knew was old. All culture, all technology, everything was looking back to a golden age and trying to preserve what worked in an age where the system had fallen apart. And that's what humans do when one system runs its course. And just like humans, just like animals, just like ecosystems and climates, Everything that humans build have a life cycle, um, including governmental, political, and economic systems. Everything that we know, communism, capitalism, democracy, fascism, um, authoritarian socialism, all of these are different ways of trying to organize people that are based implicitly around the assumption that the next generation is going to be bigger than this one. But the next generation is not bigger than this one. The Xers are smaller than the Boomers. There was an Echo Boomer in the Millennials, but only in those few countries. And then the Zoomers are smaller than the Xers. And the generations starting to come up behind the Zoomers now are smaller still. We're looking at ever-decreasing population. Unless that turns around, we're in a post-growth world indefinitely. Some uh, people that break down 
the dynamics of what this does and how this works are George Friedman in The Storm Before the Calm. He projects a, a, a really actually optimistic scenario, rather in, in a weird way similar to Peter Diamandis in his book Abundance, where despite the declining population, the successive technological revolutions will continue the process of economic uplift once we figure out what the next technological revolution is. Um, Peter Zion is a geopolitical and economic analyst who focuses heavily on demography. His books, The Accidental Superpower, The Absent Superpower, and Disunited Nations are absolute must-reads on this topic. And he's got a new book coming out this June or July, but I forget the title of it. And but, I believe all of his books are available in, um, in audiobook. audiobooks. Yep. So if um, finding time to sit down and eyeball mm -hmm. um, three thick nonfiction volumes is difficult get the audiobooks and listen to them while you're yeah, at work. They are, they are fun listening. He's got a hell of a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a lot of stuff you can find available on YouTube, both lectures by both of these guys, as well as um, there's a, I'll find them and link to them in the show notes. There's an, a couple of Canadians who are starting to look at this that have some interesting takes on what the post-growth world could mean. But I've got this kind of romantic notion that one of the social functions of science fiction is to function as an ideas factory, to come up with ideas and put them out into the world that other people can chew on and play with of things that might be possible. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a mutation bed for potential cultural evolutionary selection, so to speak. Yes. And that's what I want this anthology to do. Right now we're ahead of the curve. And that's a really good place to do. It means that we could get some good press and publicity on this topic. Now, depending on how long the anthology takes to fill, that might not be the case by the time it hits press, but I'm hoping that those of you listening and other people that I'm put that I'm trying to sell this anthology to, other writers will see the potential and jump on board. And I'm the one talking because of the three anthologies we're shopping, this is the one I'm going to be editing. Yeah. Swords in Space will edit together and the other two are Kitty's project. But we're not, I mean, where we are now is not where we were at the Black Death, right? We've got a very different set of ground conditions. Though looking at the before and after of the Black Death mm -hmm. can inform how a society changes when they lose yes. that significant of a population. Very much so. Uh, we, we have hit many points in history where, where, we've, where a culture has lost a population and how that changes, how... Um, yep. The Bronze Age collapse is another one. Right. And um, the... Native American demographic change yep. when... Um, when the diseases from the Europeans swept through, yeah. knocked out 90% of the population in 80 years. Yeah. So um, it's uh, there's some places in history to look, but you also want to look at what's different this time. Mm -hmm. One thing that's different this time is that our civilization is tremendously more fragile than any of those previous civilizations were because so much is centralized, not just politics, but food production and stuff production, stuff in, production. In, in general yep, materials um, we are so the average western consumer is so far removed from where their food is produced where their clothing is produced how the technology that they use every day the tools that they use every day back in the Bronze Age and the Stone Age and the Medieval European Age, you either built your own tools 
or you traded directly with the people who did. Mm -hmm. And with a little bit of cash and materials, you could readily obtain the materials to start making those tools if nobody in your area was making those mm -hmm. tools anymore. And you can see analogs of that even in the Great Depression, where um, farmers and people in more rural parts started basically subsisting off of the detritus of the prosperity that came before. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you had a truck that went wrong, you fabricated the parts that you needed, to, or a tractor, you fabricated the parts that you needed to keep going. And you did that by cannibalizing old machines that were not viable anymore and um, learning blacksmithing and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, my grandfather, who grew up in the tail end of the Depression, came, he was a terrible farmer and a terrible businessman, but by the time he was 20 years old, he knew how to blacksmith and he was a good carpenter and he knew how to repair machines of all sorts. Mm -hmm. And that kind of generalized knowledge is going to come back into vogue because it will have to come back into vogue. Right. My dad was a machinist, but he was a machinist for the military and he never did the, that kind of work at home because the tools to do that sort of thing was expensive. Mm -hmm. And, and yet, he didn't know anyone locally, but if he had known someone locally, he could have like fabricated everything for our vehicles. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can go online on YouTube and you can watch um, videos of gunsmiths in Afghanistan who make AK-47s using hand tools out of parts that have been pulled off of cars. And mm -hmm. you can watch uh, guys in Africa building themselves lathes and mills and machine tools and putting them together using arc welders that they've built themselves mm -hmm. out of strings of batteries. And you can even make welding rods yourself if you've got a smithy and some paper. Because you make thin strips of metal and you wrap them in paper and you hook one end up to an arc welder and you've got a welding electrode. Not quite as nice as the stuff that we use now, but it works. There will be a lot of that kind of ingenuity on display. Mm -hmm. But uh, another place to look, and this is where I'm going to hand it over to Kitty, is there's a lot of stuff going on in biotech and other parts of the technological development and scientific world that don't get a lot of press. Our press gives you a lens that's constrained by the fact that they were all educated in the system that was designed to educate the elites for the world that is now ending. So when they think green tech, they think solar, and they think wind, and the really forward-thinking people think nuclear. But where the real action is... There's a lot that we are doing at the microbial level that is really fascinating. We have the ability to make liquid gasoline or liquid fuel from algae. Yeah, we engineer algae and liquid fuel is what they shit. Yeah, we have manufactured microbes that eat pretty much anything that we have decided is waste material that we do not want to deal with decaying. Like uh, microplastics? Yeah. Um, microplastics, heavy metals, nuclear waste, anything that is man-made and the natural decay takes too long for our comfort, we have developed or are developing microbes that eat that. DuPont's also made massive investments into uh, microbes that make plastics without fossil fuels. There you go. And um, let's see, 
we we have figured out how to put carbon dioxide into rocks. Mm -hmm. Inject it back into the mines. Inject it back into the mines. Even inject it into, I believe, a a form of cement Mm -hmm. so we could use it as a building material. Mm -hmm. The difficulty is that it is currently quite expensive to do, but we know how to do it. Where the um, difficulty lies in is not the ability to or the knowledge to do things, but how to how to scale it how to scale it how to make it cheap enough to bother with yep and so one of the interesting things that we're going to be facing in this particular civilizational transition is that we do have a new technological revolution coming in especially as it affects materials science and uh, energy that is potentially deployable in every garage everywhere because bioreactors are not hard to make but those reactors uh, and the the knowledge and technology to put all that stuff together might rely on supply chains that are currently breaking down. Yeah. So if that revolution proceeds fast enough that it becomes common and your high school kids are doing CRISPR or whatever the next generation of that kind of bioengineering is, then you're going to have a world where people can manufacture their own gasoline and their own diesel on their farms and not have to worry about the state of uh, the state of geopolitics in the Middle East or what the current administration's attitude towards fracking is. Right. But uh, if that doesn't proceed fast enough, then there will be either a complete failure to uptake these technologies or there will be a juddering where – you know, certain sectors can afford it and they'll start using it and that'll generate enough wealth that they'll start starting companies that push the stuff out much more slowly into other areas of the country and the world. Yeah. Oh, there's the cultural implications, of course, too. The birth rate thing. Yes. Yes. Um, there's only three populations in the United States, which is the on- which is one of the only countries that's got anything approaching a replacement birth rate. There's only three populations in the United States that are breeding at or above the replacement rate. And that's Latin immigrants who are largely Catholic, the Amish, and the Mormons. In 40 years, these are going to be the three dominant ethnic groups and or religious groups by population. Now, the Amish don't vote. Mm. But if they are amazingly economically prosperous where the dominant waspy culture is right. not. Um, a question about the Amish. Mm-hmm. They may be breeding above replacement rate, but how many are leaving? Not enough to draw them down. The Amish are spreading. Really? Okay. It's really, really amazing when you look at current demographic trends. But the culture that has basically run America since its inception is the uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture, which is very Calvinist. Has uh, you've heard of the Calvinist work ethic? Mm. It's what dry. It comes out of Scotland. It's what drives the prosperity and the um, robustness of that clique. And so. All of the ideas and the culture wars we've grown up with, the evangelical religious right in the 1990s, the woke crowd now, conservatives, liberals, the post-war consensus, all of that stuff is WASP culture. And even the parts that look from the outside as not WASPy, mm-hmm. they're direct reactions to. Or, or derivations the, of. Right. Like, you don't think of the hippies as being WASPs, but... They're a reaction to... A particular form of wasp culture that was culturally dead. Yeah. Yeah. But with the Latin Catholic culture 
and the Amish culture, neither of those are waspy at all. Right. The Amish do not come from Calvinists. They come from Anabaptists, which is a whole different cultural religious tradition. And the Latin Catholics are, of course, Catholics. Yeah. And the only one of these three cultural groups that are poised to demographically take over the upper crust are the Mormons. And they're waspy, but inflected through a Mormon lens. Mm -hmm. So American culture is about to have an amazing set of changes that I don't think anyone's ready for. The entire terms of all of our current debates are going to be pulled one direction by these three culture groups, and they're going to be pulled another direction by the biotech revolution. It's going to be really interesting. So, I mean, are the Amish going to end up having to get into politics to protect their right to be Amish? If they get a significant enough concentration of wealth, they're going to become a target politically. And that might force the Amish into politics. And they are poised for that because they are, are one of the communities that is actually making small farming Extremely profitable. Extremely profitable. And uh, we're reading a book right now about that called Holy Shit, which is, I'm about three chapters into it, and it's amazing. Yeah. Um, and it's also a good book to read if you want to have an idea of where farming economics might be going. Yeah. But uh, it's going to be a cultural wrench for people who live in the cities and the suburbs. We And we don't live there anymore, but we grew up there for sure. It's not just that we're really far removed from where all our stuff comes from. We're really far removed from what it actually means to live. Humans survive on death. All mm. living creatures do. Mm -hmm. um, you were tell telling me the other day about the meat thing. I am a person that is, is philosophically f for um, being as close to your food sources as possible. And I know people who are meat eaters that cannot eat a roast, cannot have a whole chicken, because they cannot cope with the fact that meat actually comes from animals. I think it's why vegetarianism and veganism has made a rise in the last couple of generations. It's because normal people are so far removed from meat actually comes from animals that when they realize meat actually comes from animals, they have a freak out and decide not to eat any meat at all. Yeah, you can see it in the moralistic rhetoric. I will not eat corpses. Mm -hmm. And yet... Plants die in order to feed us, and animals die in order to produce our plant proteins. And plant proteins are much more likely to cause allergies. Mm -hmm. uh, and environmental damage because of the, the heavy-duty monoculture that has to feed oh that. Oh, God, yeah. I'm like, I have a recently developed nut allergy, mm -hmm. and... Oh, my God. It, All thanks be to COVID. Right. And while I was going through elimination tests to find out what I was allergic to, I was off of soy, wheat, and nuts for a couple of weeks. And I was like, if I'm allergic to one or more of these things, becoming a vegetarian becomes ridiculously expensive and stupid. Like, <laughs> I, I just don't. Even with just a nut allergy, the restrictions on what I can eat and take a look at what healthy snacks are these days. Because nuts are very good for you. Yeah, nuts are extremely good for you, but a lot of cheap healthy snacks, and it's not extremely cheap, but 
certainly cheaper than manufactured beef jerky, right. are basically just nuts with flavorings mm-hmm. baked in so that they look fancier and, nuts and, and more interesting. That's all it is, is nuts and soy. Yeah. And uh, a lot of the uh, preponderance of nuts and soy, or not nuts and soy, but of soy and corn is due not to the demand, the direct demand for soy and corn, but to the demand for animal food and industrial inputs mm-hmm. that are derived from corn and soy. And when you don't have the demand pres- the demand curve present to push those kind of industrial inputs, that kind of farming is not economically viable anymore, let alone what happens when uh, the potash mine in Canada that supplies all the, potash- all the potassium for all the fertilizers runs dry, which it's starting to now. Mm-hmm. You can't do that kind of farming anymore. So what are you left with? Well, you have to return those farmlands to grazers which are the it was the grazing herds on the great plains that built up the soil yep so instead of going beyond meat you're actually in a situation where both the environmental and the economic and the nutritional incentives are all aligned towards moving towards a much more heavily meat-based diet that yes. is much closer to the consumer Kitty and I were talking about this a few days ago for a different reason, but a lot of the things that become frontline high-press environmental issues become that way because we can see them. We can see the smoke coming out of the back of the tailpipe. So we want to move to electric vehicles. But electric vehicles and battery technology and solar and wind power, outside of some really narrow geographical areas on this planet, are environmental losers. They create more carbon emissions, more heavy metal pollution, more environmental despoilation than using gasoline in your vehicle. And liquid fuels are so energy dense that as soon as it's possible to be synthesizing liquid fuels from algae, not only do you solve the geopolitical problems introduced by oil, or the fact that the United States may have a hundred years of oil reserves because of the shale fields, but no one else really does. You suddenly um, can wind up in a situation where local biological production of green cycle liquid fuels is the way things are done. And hydrogen actually won't solve this either because hydrogen fuel is also derived from natural gas. And the only way to get around that is to have hydrogen cracking plants at your nuclear plants. And so you have to have broad scale nuclear. So you've got basically these two roads and they'll probably happen in conjunction with the hyper technologization on one side and the sort of return, the sort of a weird kind of back to the land on everything and back to localism on the other side. Mm-hmm. And they'll be pushing at each other, but they're also going to be feeding each other. Yeah. The rediscovery of handicrafts, the re-rise of the maker movement is not a coincidence. Part of that is a reaction to the economic crisis of 2008, which made a lot of the creature comforts that we had access to a little more expensive and feel a little hollow when the world was falling apart. And so the maker culture really hit overdrive, and it's fueling a new back-to-the-land movement, which we're kind of unintentionally a part of. And... At the same time, there's been a lot of renewed interest in um, doing on-the-ground sort of agricultural research in places like Africa, and they're developing stuff using Stone Age technology that's more effective in some contexts than the stuff that we can do using all of the energy and muscle and machinery Mm -hmm. that we've been able to develop over the last 500 years. So 
if civilization is to continue in one form or another, and being that humans build civilizations, it probably will, there's going to be a really interesting set of shakeups where some things get to look more like the future we were promised in science fiction, and some things get to look a lot more like the pioneer era, and these things will coexist in a fashion that seems kind of ridiculous looking at it from the world we grew up in. So... I want ideas about how this kind of stuff might unfold. What the experiments, because there's going to be millions of experiments. What experiments might bear fruit? What experiments might go crazy and create an existential danger? What experiments might fail miserably? And not just on a technological level, but on a sociological level. How are people going to handle childcare when it's not economical to run centralized schooling anymore. We're already right on the cusp of that. What's going to happen to local communities when supply chains are are on a long-term basis kind of perpetually disrupted? How are people going to react? And we're already seeing some of and that. And we're already seeing some of that. When just-in-time supply chains can't get there just in time, there's only going to be so long that people just wait around for things to get fixed before they start doing things for themselves, even if those things aren't legal. And historically speaking, regulatory changes are driven only by two things. They're driven by lobbying. Mm-hmm. And they're driven by a critical mass of people breaking the rules because they don't have another choice. Yeah. Either because they don't have another choice or because they don't give a damn, which you can see in the legalization of marijuana. That was a battle of attrition. It's still going on, but it's pretty much one. I mean, the, the people that grew up conservative Republicans and are being elected from places like Tennessee and are heavily religious are now making mar- uh, national marijuana legalization part of the platform. I wouldn't have predicted that back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everything's up for grabs right now, and it's really, it's kind of scary, but it's also really interesting and potentially exciting. And that's another thing is, is political realignments, um, things that you do not normally associate with the Democrats or the Republicans are starting to switch around because of, of demographic changes and who's voting and who's not. The number of right-wingers I know who are polyamorous or in polygamous type of families and who aren't religious and who are culturally very liberal. And it's not being driven by the Mormons. And it's not being driven by the Mormons. And it's, a, But I'm seeing more and more people in that class. And these are people that, you know, some of them I've known through their whole political evolution 15 or 20 years ago, they were hardcore left-wingers. And their underlying values have not changed that much. But their opinions about what policies will serve their underlying values have changed. Right. So there's going to be a lot of stuff like that going on. So what I'm looking for are people with all kinds of perspectives, all kinds of philosophical, religious, political ideas, people who've got fingers on the pulses of different industries or interests in different places than I do, to bring stories to this anthology and try to ask interesting what-if questions about the things they know or are interested in and try to answer them in ways that make compelling reading. And if we can get this anthology out ahead of the curve, we can make a big splash and maybe launch a few careers in the process. And that's kind of what I want to do with this. I love it. So um, hopefully that gives you a little bit of background, some places to look. Pretty soon here we're going to do bumpers 
for the show that'll pitch each anthology and we'll run them on a rotating basis so you guys can keep in mind what we're shopping because we do want to get these out this year for sure and the sooner the better yeah so thank you very much for writing in nicole and uh it's gonna be fun we'll see you tomorrow the Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.